Hey, this is Steve Balton, and you are here on My Turning Point, where we talk to some of the biggest musicians in the world about the moment that changed their life. How did Duff McKagan get to be Duff McKagan of Guns N' Roses? He'll tell you today while talking about his new album as well, Tenderness, and telling us about life on the road with Guns N' Roses. Thanks. Let's have Duff join us. So tell us, you know, Duff, what was your jumping off point? What was that turning point moment for you that led you to, well, the studio today? I, I would have to say there's two. Um, now I'm thinking about it. Um, the, the first one, like, that really informed me musically and still stays with me today it's, it, uh, was when I went and saw The Clash in 79, pre-London Calling. I saw them at the Paramount Theater in Seattle. There was like 150 punkers there. And um, back then, there was, it wasn't slam dancing yet. It was, it was just pogoing, right? And the, uh, the yellow-coated security guys there at the Paramount didn't know what pogoing was all about. And they thought we were fighting. And a, a security guy punched a guy in the front row and broke his nose. So they were fighting, so the Clash stopped the show. And let me preface this by saying I thought the Clash were as exotic and huge as Led Zeppelin, who I'd just seen at the Kingdom in 77. They were from England. They were, to me, as big as Led Zeppelin. Um, but I was really close to the band. You know, there's only 150 people there. And Joe Strummer stopped the show when I got his nose broken. And Paul Simonon came out with an axe, the, the firefighting axe they had on the, by the exit. And uh, we will chop down this, this barrier between you and us. If, this, you, if the security doesn't back up because we're all in this together. There's no difference between us, the band, and you, the crowd. We're in this together. And that just enlightened this whole um, train of thought for me that I've never forgot. And I, and I still believe that every time I play, it doesn't matter if it's a huge place or a small place, it's like we're in this thing together. Um, that was first. Plus, it was, it was the Clash, and they were just badass. But um, and it's also cool that you saw them, you know, pre mm -hmm. calling, pre rock, pre rock the Casbah, seventy nine, seventy nine. Yeah. that was the Clash. Man. It, it does give you a lot of punk rock credibility. Does it? Yeah. It, okay. It, oh yeah, absolutely. Okay, good. I'm glad I got that. I yearn for that. <laughs> no, <laughs> I don't. Uh, yeah, I got to see a lot of really good shows in in my teenage years, young teenage years, um, and then I would say also. So flash forward to part two of my life after I got sober um, and I was kind of hanging on by a thread um, and I entered uh, this dojo. I, I, was, I was introduced to this sensei who's still my sensei, my teacher, Sensei Benny, uh, Benny the Jet or Kitas. Uh, it was that day me walking through the back door of that dojo and meeting Sensei Benny and seeing the look, the calm look in his eyes the kind of all-knowing calm and just me wanting to strive for that calm. Uh, if I could get a piece of that calm, maybe I'd be okay. And uh, so I, I'm still trying to attain that, but I'm still with Sensei Benny. That was 25 years ago. What led you into that particular dojo? Right? Um, it wasn't luck. I'll tell you that. It, w it was, it must have been fate. Um, I had, Got on a mountain bike just to stop the shaking initially uh, when I got out of the hospital. Um, my pancreas had burst and I was in the hospital for a couple of weeks. 
I got out. They, they wanted me to go to a, a rehab, but I said, I'm done, you know, but it didn't stop the shaking. So I got on a mountain bike for probably six to eight hours a day just to, because I didn't know what else to do. Um, you know, I would, I, <laughs> I would stop into like a grocery store and it was like you're on acid when you've been that fucked up for so long and suddenly you're sober. You go into a grocery store and the voice coming through the speakers, like, you know, probably clean up on aisle seven sounds like, uh, like somebody's yelling at you, you know? And I, I remember going into the grocery store, like buying the weirdest crap. I had like crumpled up money in my pocket, like uh, barbecue sauce and a pack of cigarettes and go back out to my mountain bike. And I was just trying to be like, live a normal life. Like you got to go in the grocery store and buy a couple things. Uh, I'd buy like the wrong things. Yeah. Um, try to stuff it in the bag on my mountain bike and, and leave. And um, I had to, that was in Seattle. I had to come back down to LA, 94. Uh, I rode my mountain bike down here. I went into this Gold's Gym in North Hollywood and started, like, I've never joined a gym. You know, I'm in a gym, there's this, this trainer guy in there. And he's just like stretching me and getting rid of all these toxins and stuff. And I'm working out. I'm working out hard. By this time, I'd been riding my mountain bike a ton. So my cardio was good. I dropped a bunch of like booze weight, which isn't really hard to drop. I cleaned up my diet. Like I, I actually started eating food for the first time in 10 years. Drank water literally for the first time in 10 years. And um, somebody at the dojo, there was a kickbox or at the uh, Gold's Gym, there was a kickboxer in there this guy and he was working out I'm like, oh, what is that? I've always been interested in boxing and kickboxing. And I kind of just followed this, looked where this guy went. Somebody said, yeah, there's a dojo two doors down in the jets dojo. And I talked to this kickboxer in, in that gym, in the Gold's gym. And he said, yeah, man, you can come over, come check it out. I'll tell Sensei you're coming. And I, I just kind of, you know, like cold call, like cold called the, back door of that that dojo and there was sensei benny and he said if you he saw the condition i was in he goes if, if you want to work you know you you, you can stay here you know, if you're not going to work you know basically there's no talking here you just work you show me that you belong here what's so fascinating about that though is that you look at something like that that happened 25 years ago and i think that directly ties into this record because in the liner notes you talk about the fact that this is a record you've always wanted to make. And I imagine that that 25 years of working with Benny, working with Sensei Benny, and everything that's come to that, and, and the health and everything that come, now allows you to have the confidence to put yourself out there, both lyrically and musically, in a record that's different than anything you've ever done. Yeah, I, I, I'm, I attribute it a lot to, to Yukita Khan, my martial art, for sure. Um, and, and punk rock. To be honest with you, that that clash experience um, and and seeing Black Flag, you know, playing but and playing gigs with Black Flag through Ron Ray's and and Henry Rollins that first time when Henry joined Black Flag and the intensity that he approached that sh first show, I saw them with their the Seattle. We opened for him, um, a band I was in um, at Eagles Auditorium in Seattle, and the intensity which Henry brought into that room at Soundcheck, man. I mean, you stayed, you stayed 50 feet away from this guy. You, um, but that, all of those punk rock experiences of just being like, do it yourself and, and be truthful and honest and, and be kick-ass 
and be fucking cool, you know, really stayed with me. And, and the dojo, the Yukita Khan part two, I kind of, um, lost myself. I, I was lost. I still had that punk rock, you know, integrity in, inside of me somewhere. I, I found it again through Yukita Khan and, um, both of those things attributed to me finding a really great woman that I married and we had two kids, two beautiful girls that, you know, I raised in like a really punk rock way, which is just being honest and being cool and being forthright. And, and you keep it on martial arts. You have to be that with yourself first. And you can only help somebody else if you got your shit squared away. Um, so, uh, um, those things, you know, taking care of myself first, making sure I'm, I'm all aligned uh, so that I can take care of uh, my wife and kids and, and be a good bandmate and um, try to be a good writer, try to be a good songwriter and observe. And being a columnist for the Seattle Weekly as long as I was, five years, I, I wrote 500 and something columns, taught me to be an observationalist, big time. You know, you start like, because you got to write a column every week, right? So you're always... Like, what do I write a column on? You're, you're looking at stuff. You're not spying in on people's conversations or anything, but you're, you kind of remove yourself and you see things on a broader scale. I read a lot of history books and I've done that since I got sober. A lot of history, a lot of, and novels, and, but mostly history. And um, I've seen how history really repeats itself. You know, um, and I've read books that have warned of things that came five years later. And you, you're like, how come nobody else read this book? <laughs> you know, they're, they're, it was right. It was a manual for what was about to happen. Um, I think on this, 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 I, I've dabbled in this type of music before with Wasted Heart, a loaded song. Uh, there was a song I did on Beautiful Disease called Your Way. I was, you know, really into Lanigan's uh solo work um and i, I kind of dabbled there um but being on this guns tour that we did for two and a half years i was finally kind of i was not finally at ease but i was at i was there was this new sense of ease i had playing with the guys i came up with and we were in a really cool place with each other and that kind of whole sort of um period that we were apart was suddenly gone we we talked about things we we straightened some stuff out and and whatever you know we were just uh those guys axel and slash have taught me a lot about how to you know they're i mean axel's basically that henry rollins guy i saw at that first gig and gnarlier you know, <laughs> and, uh, but in a good, in all the best ways. Um, it's funny. I mean, it's, I, I got to, I talked to Slash a couple months ago and we were talking about, it. he said for him, the best thing of the whole tour was just sitting down and talking with Axel yeah. and clearing the air for the two of them. Right. So I'm sure just being around that sense of sort of forgiveness and calm and calm. everybody being cool. It again, of course it has to influence you yeah. and it just makes everybody comfortable around. Yeah. It's, it's calm, but you know, when it hits the stage, it's that, it's that old, thing of what we started with you know which is you know we we don't fuck around <laughs> you know we do not <laughs> fuck around when we play live it's real and it's it's dangerous and it's it's sweaty and um stinky and all of those things and we're trying to be the best we, band we can be and that's what we always tried to be you know back in the day we used to rehearse you know twice a day 
we were trying to be the best. And and it, I think for ourselves first, you know, not for everybody else. We didn't. I didn't. I didn't know if people would understand our music back then. Um, it's so we funny were, you say that. So then when you look back on it, because I talk about this with so many people too. And it's funny, you know, Mike was mentioning, I just did an interview with Gavin from Bush and with um, Ed from Live. And we're talking about, you know, they're doing anniversary tours for 25 years. Sometimes it takes 25 years to get the perspective and look at something. Mm. So when you look at it now, are you able to see, okay, we didn't know if anyone was going to like our shit at the time. And now you're able to step back from it and be like, all right, this was special. Now I can understand what it was that exploded at that moment, there even, though, some, even was, though we didn't know what was going to happen. Right. There was some point and it was... Many years later, where I was someplace and somebody played Guns N' Roses and I heard it with fresh ears. I hadn't played the songs for a while, so it must have been in the later 90s. And uh, it finally hit me like, oh, <laughs> this record's amazing. You know, um, it took me to be uh, a while to be apart from that record and playing those songs to finally kind of get it. You know, we were just in it for so long. We were like from 85 through 94, we were just in it, immersed in this thing that grew beneath us, grew huge. And, and um, personally, I didn't know, I didn't have the means to really know how to handle it. There was no how-to manual for when your band blows up, you know. In my case, I, I, you know, I, took, I took a lot of blame when I started writing about it for that book. I, it's so easy. I would write 4,000 words. I'm like, that, dude, that's the, that's the story you've been telling yourself for the last 20 years. That's not the truth. And I would delete, you know, how shameful is that? You're lying just to you and your computer. <laughs> You're telling this story and uh, you, you got, and you got like a little girl sitting next to you, your kid. Like you can't lie to your, you know, computer and yourself. Well, that's so interesting though. Cause I think for me, who was an English major, what I've always loved most about writing is that process of self-discovery that comes yeah. from it. So I'm sure there was a certain point where once you, it, it took a minute, I'm sure to be able to accept it. Cause once you see it on page and write it down, oh. You, you, there is like, oh shit, this was my fault. Like, I want to say that it was this person's fault or this person's fault oh, you or whatever do. it was. And then it's like, but once you write it down, there simply is, there's no more, you have full culpability. That's, that's the damn truth. And, and um, you know, some, some other um, rock guys have come to me to ask, they, they wanted to write their books and they have, and they've come to me and like to get tips on how to, you know, go about writing a book and, I said, the first thing, be careful. You make sure you really want to do this because you're gonna, there's going to be self-discovery in there and you're going to take the hits. If you write an honest book, you're going to take the hits for stuff you have yet to take a hit for. And it's going to be from you to you. And, uh, you know, there were some harsh realities in there, but I couldn't lie, right? I couldn't, I had to be truthful. And um, What was the hardest thing to admit to yourself? That one thing that when you went back and read the book and you were like, that that hurt. I'm glad I put it out there, but damn, I fucked up. Yeah, I think you know I could have been a better bandmate, and, and uh, I I kind of went on about that once I discovered it. Like I could have, you know, he's blaming somebody else. You're blaming the manager. You're blaming that guy, this guy, the other thing. I'm just playing, man, doing the best I can. Well, yeah, I was fucked up out of my head, and there was plenty of guys, people in my life that wanted to help me. And I, I thought it was beyond help and, and et cetera, et cetera. Um, but I didn't stop and arrest that. And, um, you know, obviously, um, ultimately, my body stopped me, you know. Um, but with, with time and perspective, I could have, you know, been super 
more helpful <laughs> in a lot of situations. Um, so, yeah, once I started pointing fingers out and kind of um, taking an assessment of, of my life, um, there's plenty I, on my side of the street that I could have kept clean, you know? Um, so um, that was a great experience. But to get to your question, which is these songs and, the, and the, being the confidence to be able to, to do this. I, I don't know if it's that. It's just, you know, I was at ease, like I said, with, with Slash and Axel. There was this, this great sense of ease and, and uh, intellectual sobriety, if you will, um, that I was able to observe while we were traveling. We traveled during the election, like the prime, you know, all of that. Um, so there's a lot, but we, we play all over the world, right? So, um, and our fans run the gamut of, it doesn't, nobody, you don't check who, if you, how you uh, registered to vote, you know, <laughs> at our, at our gigs. It's, it's everybody. We play in Muslim countries. We play in, you know, uh, uh, we play in Israel. We play in Africa. We play in Europe. We play all over America. And music is such a universal thing. You know, we've played gigs where like half the audience is, the women, you know, their heads are covered and, and, but they're rocking the fuck out, you know? And, um, it's an interesting point though, what you're saying, cause it's funny. I hadn't thought about this until I think maybe it was last year I interviewed Lars and we were talking about, you know, Metallica. There are certain bands obviously that are able to make political statements and there are other bands that feel maybe it's better not to, because like he was saying, and I think Guns falls in that same category of, although Axel has certainly become very politically outspoken, but it's like, again, your audience does run a gamut. It's split all over the place. There's not, you know, people are coming, like you say, you may be half Democrat, half Republican, or one third, one third, and then one third independent, whatever it is. Yeah. So people come there more for an escape than for, you know. Right. I mean, I mean, I think even from Paradise City, if you, if, if you look at the lyrics, I mean, but it's inclusive. Like Captain America's got a broken heart. You know, that's when the recession was going on. There was... The same bullshit in politics there always is. You know, when we think we got the right leader, it's still, you know, think back to when you were a kid, it's still the fucking man, you know? And I'm not pointing to the current thing or I read too much fucking history to like be this current. And right now it's the worst it's ever been. No, it's, it is what it is right now. And I think as a nation, we are much smarter than this. And I don't see the divide. I go out and talk to people on this tour I've gone out, I talk to people, I go to Normandy Beach, I go to Jackson, Mississippi, I go to Monticello, uh, I go to Little Bighorn, I go to World War I Museum in Kansas City. I, I purposely take side trips and do this and talk to people. And um, there's a lot of media, you know, you, if you, I have a song, Talking Heads Are Making Dollars, you know, and Tip Away, I have that lyric on there. Um, it's like doing crack day after day. And you get stuck and there's, there's, you know, what we have, we have uh, Fox News, we got MSNBC and CNN, and they, there's three different sort of things going on there. And you can, it's like doing crack. You can watch this stuff and you get sucked down a rabbit hole. And it's all fucking bullshit, man. Um, the internet, you know, it's, it's go out and go out and talk to people. And, you know, the America I know is the one that after 9-11, did anybody ask, you know, we just came to help and we united. Nobody asked what, who you voted for. Um, Hurricane, you know, Houston, uh, the flooding in New Orleans. People came to help. Nobody asked who you voted for. 
the fires in California. I could go on. World War II, you know? Right. Nobody asked who you voted for. The, the country came together. And that's the America I know. And that's the America I, I identify as um, the one I grew up in. And I grew up through, you know, one of my first memories is marching with my mom. I was in kindergarten with, with the Catholic ladies when Martin Luther King got shot. And we wore the black armbands. We marched downtown. And I was just, two of my brothers were in Vietnam at the time. And I had a lot of questions. Like, why would somebody shoot this guy? Well, just because. Like, just because? That doesn't make any sense to me at all. I, uh, why my brothers in, why are they fighting in Vietnam? Well, two men didn't agree on something. And so they get their young men to go fight it out for them. And I've not found a better <laughs> answer to that since then. Um, of course, uh, I've been asking questions for a long time, I guess. Uh, but I've been exposed to uh, things as a young man in the late 60s that my mom would take me to or my sisters. They were, you know, hippies and like <laughs> um, our families. Um, uh, were mixed, you know. Uh, my my oldest sister married a black man in uh, 1962, which was way out there then. I didn't know it as you know. Yeah, I'm a, I'm an uncle. My first two oldest nephews and niece are are mixed, right? So that I just thought there was there was a kid on our street who had like white blotches. He was a Caucasian, but he had like white albino blotches all over his skin. So I thought there was polka dotted people. There's brown people. We all played together. It didn't make a fucking difference. We didn't know. Of course, not everybody grew up like that. And then you have learned uh, behavior later on. But we're not born into that. You know, none of us are. And I think we're capable of so much um, more. And then, especially, like, turn off the TV. Turn off the internet. Just go out. And I bet you your life will get better really quick. <laughs> and, and I think these songs I wrote for this, for this record are... There's a lot of we in in the songs, um, and it's not pointing. I don't need to be another guy out there pointing a finger, and and it's not the record's not that. It's uh, hopefully meant to be a healing record, and um, uh, yeah. Go ahead, you had a question. Yeah, well, so it's just very interesting because you talk about the fact that it, it, you know, and you talk in the liner notes as well about the fact that you read a lot of history, but there was a very fictional sort of storyteller bent to so much of this because I was an English major and I love the sort of narratives that exist in there. Even in, you mentioned earlier being parent of uh, two daughters and you have, I believe the song, I suck with song titles because I listen to records all the way through. Me too. Last I September. sat with book titles yeah. last was, September. Yeah, which is written from that perspective of, of being a dad and talking about this and the things that came after me too. And so much of it was written very much from a very um, narrative. Fictional. Yes. yes. I just, I was able, God, I, I hit this really cool spot writing um, lyrics because I was writing, I was kind of writing columns at first. Like, I was, was this going to be a book? My observations? My third book? Um, but I start, you know, sometimes when I start writing, I'll write that first paragraph for a column that'll get you into your column. And these were kind of those first paragraphs of a column. Uh, vignettes, some of them were just remembered like oh, the thought I had. Um, it's a fictional story, but you know, it's, 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 um, it's as brutal as some of the stories I heard about for sure. And I wrote a song called follow me to hell for loaded 
back in, I don't know, after the, the girl down in San Diego was found, she was 15 years old, and some, some guy had come and raped her and killed her in about 2010. And I just, like, I have rage when that happens. Like, what I would do to a guy, as a father of two girls, you know, and that's maybe my weak point. I mean, I would just lose my shit. Yukita Khan, <laughs> I don't know if it could really help there, you know, like, calm me down. Um, but, uh, yeah, there's some, I mean, there's a lot of fictional stories. I mean, uh, falling down is, is, is based off of things I read in J.D. Vance's Hillbilly Elegy, but it's not his story exactly. But, um, I know enough about pill addiction <laughs> through personal, uh, personal, uh, I speak from a place of knowledge there. So on this album, when you go back and listen to these stories, vignettes, however you want to refer to them, were there one or two that really stood out to you that surprised you in terms of, again, writing being self-discovery? Once you go through them, you're like, I didn't realize how strongly I felt about that or how connected I was to this type of thing. I had to edit some things in there that I realized I felt too strongly one way or another. Um, the, the, you know, when you write, sometimes you like, uh, and you reread re it and it's like, okay, wait, just back off of that. Like, you don't actually feel that, uh, hardcore about this. Like, and, and also I purposely, you know, self-edited that stuff because I want this to be a thing of healing. I don't want to, there's no sides here, man. This is worse than like NFL teams, uh, like the, the worst, like Broncos Raiders back in the day when that. You know, they would, people would beat each other up in the you know stands. This is uh, it, it, let me say this: it appears worse because of all the news and all the you know people tweeting without like the real names, you know. And it seems super hate filled and and but I just don't. It's not that way, man. It's really not like I I, I um I've had this place in Eastern Washington since the '90s, right? And it's on the river and these these guys that I've hung out with since, since then. It's a, it's a quote-unquote red part of the state, super red. But these are my friends that I've been on the water with. We go ride motorcycles. We, do, we, we have barbecues. We hang out. And we never talk about politics. You know, and I know their politics, quote-unquote, are maybe a lot different than mine. But we don't talk about it. And we're still those friends that we've been for... I don't know how long is that now? Twenty something years, and um, but we don't watch the news together, and we don't do any of this stuff. We get on the water. We we do ass nine stuff you do on the river in Eastern Washington, and we've never stopped that. So uh, I don't know what my point to that was. Um, I think the point you were making was that you know there there is still there's still civility in the world even though the media makes it seem as if if you're one side or the other, you hate each other. I guess it sells ads, man. I guess it's just that brutally uh, money-driven that it sells ads because you can, you can switch around you know, and, and find people yelling about anything. And then they have a panel on and, then they, you know, and they're yelling. And, and, it, and I don't know when that started, the panels, when you get like... Four people all yelling at each other. and it's I was like, going to say, you almost got to mix the punk rock and the martial arts, didn't you, Risa? You were at that, uh, 
you were on that panel when, when, as the media said it, John Lydon and Marky Ramon almost came to blows. I saw two different headlines. Either they came to blows or they almost came to blows. Yeah. And it's funny because I've known John for years. He did my TV show. He is, uh, you know, he, he just is John. He's never going to change. Yeah. I mean, so, so did you feel comfortable that if you needed to step in as the bouncer, you could have done so? Yes. <laughs> um, but um, before you get to that, I mean, I, I, am, I am a sober guy. And um, I don't want to jump. I got to tread carefully here. I haven't said anything about it. I'll say something to you. You know, I, I, I took a lot of like, I was very grateful at that moment on that panel to be sober. Um, I was looking at my wife and my oldest daughter in the audience. They were looking at me with big eyes. And I was in you know, a little bit of a quandary. How do I handle this situation? Do I get pissed off and like take somebody's mic away and throw it and, and punch them in the <laughs> face? You know, thought crossed my mind for sure. But I felt bad for, for Henry. You know, he, Henry got attacked immediately. And black that's my fucking band, Black Vegan. And, and I love the pistols, you know. And Steve Jones, a really dear friend of mine. And, and um, it's the hat. I'm wearing his hat today. Yeah. I? Uh, yeah. So I just, I thought, man, more than anything, I felt it was super sad. Well, I, I mean, but it goes. It wasn't, was I don't think it was, uh, man, uh, I'll just leave it at that. I thought it was super sad. I can say what it's funny. It goes back to what you were saying, though. I guess it sells, and it's like, look. I mean, in a way, it almost feels like I, I watched the footage later on. I unfortunately I was supposed to go that day, didn't make it. It almost feels like freaking WWE wrestling. Like there is that thing of like you you have it say because then that's the thing that's going to go viral. Mm. Yeah, and the unfortunate thing we just saw, uh, been shown fifty minutes of this really it was all four parts. They condensed it into fifty minutes, and it was really positive about this great genre of music starting from the mc5 and the stooges and it went all the way through and people it was really great interviews with great people and it ended it was a really high note and then the panel started and um you know uh, it, it went it ended with like a fucking thud and i was glad to get out of there and i and i called steve and i on my way home and i said i'm really proud of you man you know, you've, you've done so much and, and uh, I'm just really proud of you. And uh, So that was that. Uh, let's come back onto the record for a second. And it's, uh, you know, I mean, I've got an interview Shooter. I'm a big fan. Talk yeah. about what he brought to, Shooter Jennings produced the record. Of course. Um, and, and again, man, this is, you know, freaking the, the memory goes as you get older. It does. There was that one record he did though that was, it Black was, Ribbons? Yes, it was so freaking good. And he and I spoke a couple times for that. Talk about what he brought to the project. And, and you know, having someone who has that ability as a singer-songwriter themselves, mm. what that brings out in you as a singer-songwriter. Well, I know Shooter's work, of course. And I've known Shooter since Stargun, right? Um, his, he had a rock and roll band. They came out to LA um, and uh, gave it a shot. And, and Shooter... It just didn't work. Stargun wasn't working. I, I'm not sure for what reason, because they were a great band. I thought they were cool, you know. Um, but Shooter went back to his roots and and recorded that Fourth of July song, and the thing was a hit. I mean, I, that that was during Velvet Revolver, and we were all super happy for him. And 
Um, and I listened to his records. And Black Rib is one of those records I put up there with Lanigan Records. I put it in the same territory as that stuff. Um, when I wrote these songs, I, I was just writing them. On the road, I had acoustic guitar. I recorded them on my garage band. Super shitty recordings, but was documenting the moment. Um, my manager, Brian, was into what I was getting at. Uh, he said, we got some, you know, we got some, we got some time right after we get back or in between these two tours. And he goes, I'm going to reach out to Shooter Jennings. I'm like, that, that's amazing. He's doing the Brandy Carlisle record right now. And, and I know Brandy, I've played with her a few times. She's from Seattle, you know? And, uh, so then I couldn't listen to the Brandy Carlisle record once it came out. Cause that's right when Shooter and I started working. I didn't want to be overwhelmed with trying to sound as good as Brandy Carlisle because she can sing like like a motherfucker and she's got a good band. So I just I like shooter, I can't listen to Brandy's record until we're done. Um but he uh I had the, a group of songs. Uh he said he wanted to do the record. It, it was it was great. I went up to his house a few times. I had my acoustic guitar, he had his piano. Um we made sure the arrangements were, were good. And he said, you know, my band, we can go in and track this thing, you know, in the next couple of weeks. My bands, they can learn this stuff in five, five minutes, each song. And his band, not only can they learn stuff quick, but they, the emotion of each song, they captured. Like they would hear the lyric and the band would suddenly morph into that lyric and the, the mood of that lyric. And um, Shooter is... It was one of the most wonderful musical experiences of my life. It was super easy, um, super inspired. Knowing Shooter is as good as he is would some, at first it kind of freaked me out. Like, I'm not the singer that he is. I'm not the, you know. Um, but he said, dude, I love your voice. I mean, you got to get that voice. You got to capture that thing. I've always loved it. He gave me a lot of... Um, uh, confidence. He just really gave me a lot of confidence, and and the song started turning out really, really good. I, I played acoustic guitar on the on the basic tracks, and then I would go and play, put the bass on, like all kind of one take stuff. The songs are one or two, maybe three takes. Uh, the bass stuff, a lot of it's just kind of first take. Jamie, the Douglas, the drummer, is a fantastic drummer in in how much space he allows. Um. Learned a lot from him. Um, and uh, Shooter's production and mixing of the record as well um, are second to none. And he, this record wouldn't be sound like it is, be anything close to what it is if it wasn't for Shooter. So after all that confidence, do you now feel like he can sing with Brandy? No. <laughs> I <laughs> no, can, no, who can? I know, who can <laughs> sing with Brandy, man? No, man. Then I, so that we finished the record. We finished mixing it. And I got home, it was a Friday night, and I bought a record on iTunes. I, uh, I have it on vinyl as well. Um, and uh, I, I got on iTunes, and I listened to the whole record with, with earphones in, you know, and I'm like, oh, this is a really good record. But I, I, felt, I felt it was the right thing to do not to listen to it until we were done. Um, but I was really happy for, nobody happier for Shooter than, than myself for him getting the producer Grammy. And and for Brandy for getting just being so badass and cool and um, so yeah it's a cool camp to be around. 
And you know, one of the things that's interesting, and we'll, we'll wrap up on these, we'll make these last couple of questions, but I think uh, Slash and I spoke about this as well, and I've been fortunate to, um, I'm a huge Springsteen fanatic, yeah. and I've spoken to several people in the E Street Band, right? And you know, there, there's kind of a point where you get to that, where either you're Jake Clemens or you're Steve Van Zant when you're playing stadiums, and then you go off and do your own thing, and you get that joy of playing in the clubs again, or whatever it is. And there's that feeling of getting the best of both worlds. You have the all the success that's come from the 20-something years or 30 years of hard work. Yeah. And then at the same time, you still get that feeling of newness that comes from being a brand new artist. And especially on a record like this, when you put yeah. yourself out in a different way, Yeah. I'm sure that you kind of are feeling that. So are you taking this out there? And talk about the exhilaration of putting yourself out in a way that is so different than anybody's heard you before. I think, you know, as a, as a musician, I... I I've been fortunate, and that really still all comes from punk rock, in, in always like pushing myself to do something different. Hey, thanks so much for joining us for the first episode of My Turning Point with guest Duff McKagan. What a freaking fascinating dude. Thanks so much to him for sharing all of this information, these great stories, life on the road with GNR, and much more. Tune in next time when our guest will be Wayne Coyne of The Flaming Lips. Introducing Under Armour's Infinity High Sports Bra. Its ergonomic design is molded to support the natural movement of your body. With cord-out padding, the better breathability eliminates extra bulk without sacrificing support. And quick-dry padding is Under Armour's fastest drying padding yet. When you're lifting heavy, running fast, and pushing yourself further than ever before, you need a bra that will help you go that extra mile and make you feel your best. Shop the Infinity High Sports Bra now at UA.com. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.